Welcome to the Better Birth Podcast. My name's Erin and I'm a hypnobirthing and antenatal instructor, birth activist and all-round birth geek. In this podcast, I chat to experts in the field of pregnancy and birth, debunking myths around birth, diving into the research around maternity care and exploring what is it that means you're more likely to have a positive birthing experience. If you enjoy this podcast, do feel free to buy me a coffee and fund my caffeine habit. Link to my buy me a coffee page is in the podcast info. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Better Birth Podcast. Today, I am very honoured to have a very special person coming to talk about uh, her work, Sharon Stolia. She is a midwife, she's an author, and she's a researcher. Uh, she's over in Australia, so she's kindly given up her evening, because it's morning here, uh, to come and talk to me. Um, and I'm, I'm so happy to have you come on and talk about all the amazing research you've done, because I've already shared it on my Instagram once, and I'm going to be sharing it lots more um so welcome thank you Erin it's lovely to be here it's really lovely to finally chat with you after connecting online um, on Instagram yeah. so I'm really excited to chat today me too so do you want to just introduce yourself a little bit um and just explain to the listeners who you are and what you do and why you do what you do yeah um so I'm Sharon I'm a midwife um and an RN I am doing a PhD in um, midwives' personal experiences of pregnancy and childbirth, and I want to look at how their own experience impacts or if it impacts on their professional practice. So that's my PhD, which is now in its seventh year, um, hoping to get it finished soon. Um, yeah, so that uh, I've, I've published two papers as a result of a national survey that I put out a few years ago in Australia um, of midwives here and some really exciting results um, coming your way um, on top of what's already out there. But I got onto this journey um, through my own experience of when I had my son 11 years ago now. Um, I didn't have the best experience. I, it was a traumatic experience and I felt very much like I had fallen through the cracks of the maternity care system um, when I was, you know, it really made me realise the power of having that work uniform and that work ID badge on you. Um, when you're in that position, you have all this power to make things happen. And then when I was the birthing woman on that bed in a patient gown, and it, it was, it just felt like nothing I said mattered, nothing I said carried any weight. It didn't matter that I had this knowledge and this experience, this qualification as a midwife. And um, unfortunately, it was quite a drastic complication. I had an acute compartment syndrome, which um, didn't get picked up because I, I wasn't listened to. Um, my own assessment of myself and my pain levels were dismissed. And, um, you know, as this was happening, I was sharing a lot on Facebook um, to keep, you know, it was just easier to share my progress with friends in the one go instead of replying to all the many messages I was getting. And um, 
because I was so open about it over the years, I had I had um, quite a few friends and colleagues, um, you know, professional midwives and obstetricians actually reach out to me and share their own experience of when they gave birth. And um, while they all had different uh, scenarios, it, it was generally the same theme of feeling like they fell through the cracks, feeling like not, you know, you're either a patient or a maternity care provider, but you, but when you're that, when you're a maternity care provider as the patient, um, it's, it's neither one or the other. You're somewhere in between and you, you, you can't really identify with either of those identities. And um, I had I had these people sharing this with me and I just felt this, I just felt this tug in my heart. I, I need to do something to give these people a voice, um, to give them a platform, uh, a chance to share their experience. Like, uh, and my thinking was we have this wealth of, knowledge and research on birthing experiences in general in in women but um i just thought hang on the majority of midwives are are females they are women they they are mothers or uh, they've had children or they will have children um yet what is the relationship there between that knowledge and that and that role and does that impact one does the knowledge impact on their choices or does their experience impact on how they um, practice later on? So it really got me thinking and that's um, because of these people that reached out to me and shared their, their feelings of, you know, falling through the cracks and being isolated and left to their own devices in hospital to kind of midwife themselves when they really shouldn't have to. Um, that's what led me on the road to doing studying a PhD in this field. And there's, there's so much coming out of your PhD, isn't there? I mean, you like you said, you published two papers, and just just the first one, the the one that prompted me to contact you was your um, your survey of midwives' birth choices and outcomes. Um, mm -hmm. There was, I mean, I could spend hours. <laughs> scouring through that one paper that you have published mm. because there is so much information and there's so many eye-opening statistics in that one piece of work that you've published you know I mentioned one of them before we started recording but I could reel off like tons of amazing mm. stats and, and information I mean what for, for that for that particular paper what was the kind of real um kind of light bulb moments and epiphanies that you came across as you as you went through that research well for me it was it was true and mind you that paper is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the data that I've got that I'm working on to share with everyone so that was just plain statistics and um there's a wealth of information there um to come and but in terms of that paper, um, I think the the one that really got me was um, the home birth the home birth numbers. So eleven point two percent had births at home, um, but a quarter twenty five percent of the midwives surveyed. Um, I think it was four hundred and forty seven midwives um, in this part of the survey wanted to birth 
outside of the hospital setting. So, and those midwives are midwives who work in the hospital setting. And so that really was a bit of a concern. Well, it was really explaining what we're seeing every day, um, the high risk of intervention and emergencies happening in a setting. And, and you can see the people that are working in this hospital setting want to birth away from this setting. Um, and then the amount of those midwives who actually got to birth outside the hospital was amazing. Like it's still not much, but 11.2% is huge compared to what the statistics are in the general population. Um, so that was kind of a highlight moment for me. So the other thing that really struck me was the three quarters of midwives, so 75.4% of midwives were able to choose the individual care provider, the, who they wanted, whether that was uh, another friend or colleague or uh, an obstetrician that they've worked with, they were able to pick that person um, to, to have that person care for them during labour and birth. And that's um, something that the general population of birthing women do not get access to because they rely on that on building the relationship through antenatal appointments, whereas these midwives kind of get continuity. They got continuity by default yeah. because it, yeah. it didn't matter what model of care they were in. Um, they could have chosen midwife clinic where technically um, in a hospital is, is fragmented. You don't always see the same person. It's just any, any person who's there it wouldn't have mattered to these midwives because they knew them. So they had that continuity, they had that trust, and they were able to, you know, able to get that. That's that's a high level of autonomy and um, in navigating the system to get the outcomes that they wanted. And we know that if you have a known and trusted care provider, you're more likely to have a positive, overall positive experience. You're more likely to get the birth outcomes that you want. And I think it's evident in the, the high number of um, normal births in this in this cohort of um, midwives. Yeah, it's, 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 I think it's really, it's just, it's mind blowing, to be honest, the, the stats that you've got. I mean, you mentioned that 11.2% uh, of midwives um, had a home birth. The national, just to put that into context, the national average in, in Australia is 0.4. Like that's a massive difference. That's a mm -hmm. massive difference. Um, and there was a couple of other things that I, that I spotted when, when you first, um, you know, published the, the, the paper was that fewer midwives had cesareans so 68 percent mm -hmm. versus the national average of 37 yeah. percent um and 95.8 percent wanted a vaginal birth rather than a c-section so yeah. it's it's i think it's having that unique insight isn't it into maternity yeah. care and and that's obviously um steering and influencing the decisions that they're making um yeah. and I think it's interesting the home birth point is something that I'm particularly interested in because it's something that's kind of uh it's, it's there's a real stigma around home birth I'm sure in Australia as well as in the UK right a bit yes, planning a home birth people will say oh my god you're so brave you know mm. um and I kind of think 
God, you're so brave if you go into hospital to give birth. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's how I see it too. But I wouldn't have seen it before I became a midwife. Yeah. And it's 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 eye opening, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, 89.1% of the people who wanted to have a home birth. The reason is because they wanted to avoid complications. They thought they thought there was a higher chance of obstetric emergencies occurring within the hospital setting. Yeah, that's yeah. volumes, doesn't it? It's um, it's really telling about what's going on in the hospital setting. Um, and it's for the people who are working in there. And I think it's important too, if you look at, so 75% of these midwives got the person they wanted. They didn't all want to birth at home. A lot of them wanted to birth in the hospital, but it, their choice of place of birth, what I found when I really looked at this paper at the results in the survey, their, their place of birth choice wasn't dependent on hospital versus home it was about the care provider they wanted so for these midwives even if the they they might have chosen a hospital but not because of anything to do with the hospital but more okay I can have you and you and you looking after me and then we've got the manager in the ward saying okay if you go into labor yep you can be automatically rostered on and it, it, you get all these little side deals done, these advantages that um, other people don't get. And, and why is that important? <laughs> because you need to trust the people that are supporting you when you give birth, right? And that's why these midwives are choosing to prioritise that continuity of carer and choosing people they know and trust to support them in labour over and above birthplace. Yes, that's right. We get right, you know, yeah. it, and you know, in the UK, I'm, I'm sure, it, like you said, in in Australia, it's the same. You're lucky if you see the same midwife for every antenatal appointment. It's it's very, you know, and even if you do see the same midwife all the way through your antenatal appointments, what's the chance of that person being at the hospital when you go into labour on the day? It's it's slim and very unlikely because you know that midwife might be working only in antenatal. Exactly. So, and, and the other thing that's, you know, part of their reasons for the reasons for why they chose the care provider that they did was because first they had that existing relationship, but they knew that that care provider would acknowledge and respect their professional knowledge and experience in saying that, that they knew the care provider would respect their choices, whatever the choices they're making, their informed choices. And so if this midwife wants this, they know this midwife knows that her care provider is going to respect that and advocate for whatever it is that she wants and needs. And but that's how we get that. But my hands in my hands, because it makes that that point makes me really cross because you shouldn't have to be a midwife for your choices to be respected, right? That's right. You're you know you've experienced this from your own birth experience of being dismissed and not listened to you know mm-hmm. I think and I think it happens far and wide in maternity care more in maternity care I'm gonna say than other other aspects of of health care for you know mm-hmm. yeah more in maternity care I think more postnatally though like because 
I, and this is going to come, a bit more of this will come out in my third paper, which I'm nearly finished, but antenatally and during labour, I also had a friend who was an MGP midwife and she looked after me and everything was perfect for me. Like it didn't, uh, I ended up having a cesarean, but, but I wasn't traumatised by that. I was still very much in control of when she came and said, listen, you've got an anterior lip, you know, any longer, you know, the baby's trace isn't great. I made that choice to say, yes, okay, I, I get it. I, I'm okay with this. It wasn't, it was in postnatal where the care was fragmented, where had people, different person all the time, different doctors coming here, in and out. And, um, and when I wasn't listened to there, it just really made me realise, like, if this is so hard for me in this, um, you know, having that knowledge, having that background, these people know I'm a midwife. I had worked with some of them before in other hospitals as well. And it's so hard for me to get my get what I want. And all I wanted was some pain relief and to get someone to look at my leg, really. Um, I just thought, how much is how much harder is it for for non midwife women to get what they want to have their choices respected? And you know, I at least had the advantage in the getting the person that I wanted for my labor and birth. But it's not the same for everyone else. Yeah, it's and it's it's frustrating, isn't it? Because and this is why. You know, I tell people they 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 need to do antenatal classes and they need to prep for their birth and they need to know what their rights are so they can advocate your, for, for themselves. But it's frustrating because really, in an ideal world, we shouldn't have to do all that stuff, right? We should be able to go and trust the person that's supporting us in, in during labour and postnatally and trust that what they're telling us is the right advice and the most up-to-date advice and that they're doing it you know, in a, in a balanced and non-biased way um, and to, to, to put faith in, in those interactions. Um, but it's not, not always, not always the case, is it? That's right. And that's what really was um, very painful for me. Painful for me was realizing that, you know, I had all this faith and trust in a system that I had worked in and, and I felt I was one of them. And, it was really this sense of huge betrayal and letdown when I thought, actually, no, I'm not. Like, I'm just being treated like everyone else. And if this is how everyone else is treated by the system, this is not right. Yeah. So we mentioned that you published two papers so far. So what was your other paper that you've published? The other paper was an integrative review um, of the literature that's already out there on this topic. So not my data, um, just whatever's there. And there wasn't much at all. There was definitely more um, personal birth stories of midwives. And those stories were published in professional journals um, instead of um, like the peer-reviewed journal. So non, um, but because I did an integrative review and uh, I was able to use that, especially because the topic isn't well-researched at all. Um, I just thought, you know, 
it just makes no sense as to why it's not looked at because um, just today I was reading an Instagram post as to why um, so much of the information and advice given to women is different from different midwives than someone writes because of their personal experience. So I thought, well, that, we need to look into that. And if that is the case, well, what do we do about that? How do we, you know, leave our biases at the door before we go and provide care? How do we check ourselves? Um, how do we stop that? Um, our fears and, and concerns from our own experience influencing how we treat other women. Like you don't want to project your own fears onto someone else. So, so that it will be a fourth paper. So I've got that data. So I'm going to look at that um, and see and see if there's any recommendations I can give as a result of that. Um, so, yeah, it's a very big topic. Um, I think it's a really... So it's a really important point because I think without an awareness of self and how your own experiences, either your birth experiences or your experiences of working on a labor ward, for example, you know, if you if you if you cluster together all the midwives who work on a very in a very obstetric setting and all the midwives who work in community and work exclusively on home birth, they will have very different opinions on birth right because of what they're exposed to and that influences their opinions um and you know not having an awareness of self and not having an awareness of how those experiences lived or you know uh, career-wise are affecting how you advise a pregnant person I think that's a, a, a huge problem actually yeah. um you know I've had clients who have gone into meetings with consultants and I always tell remind my clients that you know if you're speaking to a consultant your consultant is used to dealing with high-risk pregnancies yeah. they are more risk adverse therefore their advice is going to lean towards a certain direction and you need to bear that in mind when you're having that conversation mm -hmm. um and I've had clients who have who have kind of dug into the advice that they're being given and like what's what's the evidence where's the research if you're talking about a six-fold increase in stillbirth can you quantify that and where's that statistic come from Sometimes it's anecdotal, <laughs> you know, it's not based on research, it's, it's based on opinion. Um, so I think as a care provider, it's, it is really important to your point, you know, that, that, you know, understanding how those experiences are affecting how you're providing advice is, is crucial. Yeah, and I also think, you know, for, for look, if we look at um, birth trauma, one in three women have birth trauma. So then we've got midwives, so surely there's a birth trauma rate there too. So, so how, what are we doing for those midwives? Are, are they being forced back to a place where they're being re-traumatised without support? Um, how is that fair for them and the people that they care for? So there's also that element of that because, I mean, it will, I'm sure we all agree that childbirth is such a... Um, sacred time and it's such a monumental moment in someone's life and and in a way everything you do in your life that has an impact in it, it whether you see it or don't it, your worldview that changes the lens you look at the world um I'm not even saying it right but you know what I'm saying it changes mm -hmm. and so then what about midwives where their job is that Mm -hmm. 
there is such a close relationship there. We have to kind of unravel that. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm really trying my best to get through that data to get it out there. You know, I think there'll be some important points, important recommendations to make um, in terms of, you know, self-reflecting and maybe some kind of program to be put in place where midwives have um, some kind of debriefing sessions with a trained person to identify their beliefs about birth and the whole process and if it's changed and how are they going to prevent that from being projected onto the people they're care for but I think also importantly how do we protect the midwives who have been traumatized yeah. we don't send our war veterans back to their place of trauma so yet we're still doing that to our midwives whether we realize it or not, just by the fact that there is nothing in place to protect them systematically, we're doing that. So yeah. it's a two-pronged thing, I, I think. So I'm I'm so excited to hear all the rest of the, the the papers that you're going to publish from all this data. I was saying to you before we started recording that we need somebody to do the replicate this in the UK because I think it would be eye-opening. Um yeah. <laughs> Please get in touch with me. I'm happy to share my survey. <laughs> I actually did get a lot of interest from um, midwives in the UK wanting to do my survey, but um, we had to put a cap on it being a national survey because it's otherwise it's just too big for a PhD um, study. But I know the interest is there, so it's just a matter of someone saying, I want to do it. <laughs> Somebody's listening. Do the survey. <laughs> Running <laughs> in the UK, we need this data. <laughs> so many midwives have. First of all, I didn't think I would get more than fifty because the survey was such a long survey. It took some people two hours to do. I had so many more responses than um, what I expected because because they're you're only seeing the results on one group. There's a second group of midwives that answered the survey, which I haven't even touched on yet. And they're the midwives that had babies before becoming a midwife, then they became a midwife and then they had another baby. So they have that uh, comparison in experience. And I wanted to answer the question, is ignorance really bliss, mm -hmm. right? So there's that data to come as well. Whereas the group that we're talking about now are midwives um, who who had their baby after becoming their first baby after becoming a midwife. So um, these midwives have written so much about their experiences. They have just entrusted me with such valuable, precious information about their lives um, that I, I'm just. I really am trying my best to do it justice and to just get their voice out there and and tell the world this is how they experience it, labour and birth. Mm. Sounds like you've got a second book. You need to talk yeah. about, <laughs> <laughs> about your first book, though, because you, you kindly sent me a copy because you, you have written a book, haven't you, about your, your own birth experience? Yeah. Yeah, that, that was um, a long time coming, that book. That was my my story, um, how I experienced it, what happened, and 
And really, it's a lot to do with how I fought and spoke up afterwards. And it, it took many years to get what I wanted. And ultimately, so what I really wanted was um, my, what happened to me was so rare. And even though a neurologist came and said on day two, I think she's got compartment syndrome, you need to get a vascular opinion. The obstetricians <coughs> and the surgeons, sorry, um, who were, I had about eight different teams looking after me. It was like this circus act. Um, they, they said, no, no, we've never seen it after having a baby. It's common in ED, in trauma victims, um, but we've never seen it in obstetrics. So it can't possibly be. And this was this reasoning that I got the whole time. And anyway, after I went home and, you know, was dealing with the consequences of it and the surgeries, and I just, I desperately wanted them to write up my case report because I wasn't happy with the first letter I sent them, I wasn't happy with it. I wasn't happy with the first meeting. I just kept getting dismissed. I kept thinking, gosh, like you didn't listen to me in hospital. You're not listening to me now. And I was so determined. I started researching acute compartment syndrome and I actually found 15 case reports published um, in of women who got this after having a baby. But they were all published, um, of the, they were all the ones where the doctor had identified it and done the limb-saving surgery. Um, I found one in the legal um, notes, in some legal case files where a woman in America had sued because they didn't do the surgery. And it was interesting that wasn't published in the literature. So I was on this mission to first get an acknowledgement of what they did, like, Hey, we stuffed up and we could have done better. And I wanted them to change their practice. I wanted them to do certain things to make sure it didn't happen. And what I really wanted was my case report written up because I was just so adamant that if this happens to someone else on the other side of the world and the doctors have never seen it, so how could they know? And I don't want someone else to be dismissed just because they've never seen it. And the next woman might not be as lucky as I was. Because normally with compartment syndrome, if you don't get a fasciotomy, you're very likely going to need an amputation, right? So I, I was lucky with the support I had and that I, I got to keep my leg um, miraculously. So that, that's what I wanted. And I had to fight really hard and for so long. And finally, um, so a lot of my book is, you know, talking about how I had to advocate for myself um, years later, you know. Um, it was only in 2020 when that case report finally got written up. Um, you know, and I just talk about, you know, how my life changed, the impact really I focused um, besides that fight that I had. It was it was really talking about the, the lived experience, like what it's like to live with birth trauma, the long-term impacts. And I just wanted to highlight, you know, when maternity care providers see people in hospital and there's some bed number and some interesting case, that interesting case goes home and has to live with that those consequences every day. But these staff go home and come back to new interesting cases. And I just wanted to shine some light on, on the reality of it, you know, years down the track, what it means. Just like I, I share some really personal things about miscarriage, about being in hospital, how like I'd get flashbacks and years later and 
um, just to raise awareness of the incidence and the prevalence of, um, of you know, long-term impacts of birth trauma. Mm. So that's, um, but I have to say just last week, week before, I had someone get in touch with me from the States and he said um, he found me in this compartment syndrome group on Facebook um, and said that his wife had a compartment syndrome in after having a baby and the doctor had, um, he, he was asking me some questions and he said the doctor had seen my case report and got her the surgery to save her leg. so it was you know it's been really emotional reading these messages and realizing just the impact of advocating after something like that has happened to you um because you just never know when you're going to save someone so I started doing some free webinars I, I did one this morning and one two days ago just to just to show people to how to get started with writing a letter of complaint when you've been had disrespectful maternity care, just to empower as many as I can um, to give them a voice to speak up. Yeah, I so saw it on your Instagram. I saw it Sorry. on your I saw it on your Instagram the, the the letter template. So I'll I'll make sure I tag you in all the social posts when 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 this goes live and um, just so that people can get that information um because it's really important information to know how to how to put in a complaint if you have if you have one mm, yeah i think that's and that's really you know is what does it is um how to make the change it does change practice it, it really does um and it can make a difference that i mean it shouldn't be this hard but um unfortunately that is what it is right now so I just think we need to speak up yeah well hopefully you know all the amazing work that you're doing and all of this research is going to help steer change um and influence and inspire people in the UK to do the same so (laughs) coming on today um I really really appreciate it I'll make sure that I I um I include links to all your research and all your your social media accounts and and so on, um so that everyone can follow you. What's your Instagram um handle if people want to find Sharon you? Stolia. So I've got two. I've got Sharon Stolia and then another one called Ending Birth Trauma, where I'm just putting a few things up there to raise awareness of this. It's very close to my heart. Um. Yeah, just a passion project of mine on this side. Uh, like it's been really <laughs> Sorry? I haven't got enough to do already. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really nice to do something that gives me a lot of satisfaction and I just, you know, have been really spurred on hearing from this couple in the States. Just really, just reinforced everything for me. I, I'm on the right track for my life's calling I think you know the path that I need to be on and um and I'm doing it the best I can <laughs> amazing thank you so much for coming on it's been a pleasure chatting um, thanks for having me Erin it's been so nice to chat to you oh you too I'll be waiting for the next paper to come out and then I'll, I'll I'm going to be reading every word <laughs> <laughs> I'll send it to you as soon as it's there <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much Sharon thanks Erin
Bye. The Better Birth Podcast and all of its content is for educational and informational purposes only. You should consult your midwife or your doctor for anything in relation to your own pregnancy and birth. The opinions and the views of the guests on the Better Birth Podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Better Birth or Erin Fung.